Well, the gap of the Lord Tour was first made proper by the local gentry who brought their friends on shooting trips through the pass. And they discovered the beauty of it. And also having a pack lunch before they went on a boat trip down through the three lakes. So that was the origin of the Gapton Law trip as such, because the local people didn't realize what a beautiful place they were living in. Um, it can be done now, either partway into the Gap or doing the full round trip, which is transport from Killarney either by coach or jaunting car. Uh, a stop at Kate Carney's cottage, uh, where Kate Carney lived nearly 200 years ago. She was a very beautiful lady and a bit of a character as well. She was a marriage breaker, if you like, something that might not make much news nowadays. But there were no screen stars in this world at that time, people came from all parts to see her. Now, after a stop at Kate Carney's cottage and some refreshments, the visitor starts either on ponyback or carriage right through the Gap of Dunlow, which is a very beautiful trip. And, uh, as I say, the one that was pioneered by the local landed gentry in the early years. As you approach the Gap, you will be arrested by some of the thousand and one women, boys and girls who will gather like a rolling snowball as you proceed. They will try to tempt you with goat's milk and mountain dew, but some of them will offer you stockings of their own knitting. In all ways, they will try to wile the visitor out of patience, with a good supply of which he should therefore be provided. A poor blind man will meet you and solicit something for a tune on his fiddle, and here and there, men with small cannon will expect you to exchange a sixpence for a shot. A good bugler is always in the gap, and will accompany the tourists through it. Just before you reach the glen, you will be asked to visit the cavern of Kate Carney, who will invite you to drink goat's milk and something warmer, and farther in, just before you leave the carriage and take to ponies, is a slated house where a man, Tim O'Connor, keeps a public house. About the centre of the gap is a nate cavern, at which a poor woman will be found busy knitting ladies' collars or some bed quilts. Dear lady visitors, see and help her, for God has afflicted her so that she cannot walk, although she can work. Mrs. Hall, writing in 1865. Uh, you'll get off your pony or carriage at Lord Brandon's cottage, and a packed lunch is served by the boatmen to the visitor, which is something like a hunting party of old, and quite different to being served by a waiter or waitress in a hotel. You're served by the boatmen who have a special technique of their own. They're also very good at telling the yarn with a twinkle of an eye. Irish guides are the most amusing fellows in the world, always ready to do anything, explain any matter, go anywhere. For if the tourist proposes a trip to the moon, the guide will undertake to lead the way, bedad he will, with all the pleasure in life. They are invariably heart anxious to please, sparing no personal exertion, enduring willingly the extremes of fatigue, carrying as much luggage as a pack horse, familiar but not intrusive, never out of temper, never wearied of either walking or talking and generally full of humour. They enliven the dreariest road by their wit and are, of course, rich in old stories. Some they hear, others they coin, 
and occasionally make a strange hodgepodge of history, working a volume of wonders out of a solitary fact. There's a nice story about the Devil's Island because you are also looking right above you at Talk Mountain. And on the corner of Talk Mountain, there is a large gorge from the right-hand side, and it's known as the Devil's Bit or the Devil's Bite. And the story goes that uh, once upon a time, a long time ago, um, the Devil was a very powerful individual in Killarney. Some of the boatmen think he still is. But um, they say he owned all the people. And they say the O'Donoghue, the chieftain of Roscastle, owned all the land. And they didn't get on very well together, needless to say. And one day they met up near um, the Devil's Punch Bowl, which is a very large mountain on the left of Talk, which has a large um, lake on top, which was known as the Punch Bowl and still is. And the Devil and the O'Donoghue met up there, and they had a little dispute as to who was the rightful owner of both people and property. And they say the O'Donoghue got the better of the argument. And he decided to chase old Nick out of the country altogether to finally get rid of him. And they say he chased the devil down across Talk Mountain. And the devil, finally knowing that he'd have to go, took a large bite out of a corner of the mountain. And he turned and flew across the middle lake on the direction of Ross Castle. And said he would at least destroy the stronghold of the Odono before leaving the country. But about halfway across the middle lake, he was intercepted by the Odenhoe's mother-in-law. And if you lived in this part of the country for a while, you'd know her mother-in-law's name. They say she was brandishing an Irish lady, and this is our ancestor, the atom bomb around here. And they say she hit him on the head with this shillady and forced him to drop the bite. And the bite you see is the Devil's Island today, the only island known in the Middle Lake. On the day in 1834, when the Scottish journalist Henry Inglis visited the Gap, he was feeling liverish. He was not impressed. The Gap of Dunlow did not seem to me to be worthy of its reputation. It is merely a deep valley. But the rocks which flank the valley are neither very lofty nor very considerable in their form. And although, therefore, the Gap presents many features of the picturesque, its approaches to sublimity are very distant. I was struck more by the view after passing the gap, up what is called the Dark Valley, a wide and desolate hollow surmounted by the finest peaks of this mountain range. S.R. Hole had a friend with him when he walked up the gap in 1859. Thus conversing, we drew near to the gap and to the cottage of Mrs. Moriarty, née Carney, and granddaughter of the beautiful Kate, and we did not hesitate to decline the proffered draught of goat's milk and whiskey although we implicitly believed Mrs. M.'s assertion that if we drank it, we should want nothing more throughout the remainder of the day. The Gap of Dunlow is a wild ravine, a defile through the mountains. On the right one sees the Reeks, and on the left the Tomies, Glenar, and the Purple Mountain, which, rising on either side, dark, stern, and sterile, imparts a solemn grandeur to the pass. The river Low flows beneath the huge blocks of stone, which have fallen from the rocks above, heard but not seen, except in the small lakes which occur at intervals, and which, still and gloomy, add much to the impressive scene. But we soon found a truer solace in the view of the Coombe Wood, the Black Valley, and in listening to the roar of its mountain streams, which, rising and falling upon the breeze, sounded as though some monster train bore giants over the hills at express speed, with Gog and Magog as guard and stoker. 
A French lady, Anne-Marie de Beauvais, visited Killarney in 1891. She felt that the tourist faced certain hazards. At the bridge of Beaufort, however, he finds ambushed a squadron of ill-looking and ragged horsemen who at once pursue him. They are not exactly brigands, but owners of horses who offer you their beasts for that part of the road impracticable for carriages. Once everybody has chosen his horse, the rest retire and await new victims. But if anyone preferring to walk persists in his refusal, the whole band pursues him with assurances that the pass is very long and difficult, that he is sure to be ill, that he cannot reach his journey's end, and so forth. Once she had taken to the waters of the lake, things looked up for Madame de Beauvais. She enjoyed shooting the rapids. At the southern point of the latter, the long range, hitherto flowing so gently, pours swiftly through the two unequal arches which connect the island with the mainland. The boatmen pass these rapids very cleverly, shipping their oars and guiding the boat with a pole. In time of flood, there are occasionally accidents, hence nervous people who get excited just when calm is most necessary are advised to go ashore and rejoin the boat lower down. It is, however, a pleasant sensation to be whirled along by a torrent with which it is idle to contend. Uh, we come to the old way bridge where we shoot the rapids. It's um, an 11-foot wide bridge leading from the Long Range River and the upper lake right onto the meeting of the waters where you take one stream leading onto the low lake and another stream shooting to the right going onto the middle lake. We like to take the one to the right, um, taking in another lake. But coming through this bridge after heavy rain, um, you have very little room to manoeuvre and the people get very excited about it and it's a, a great feature of the trip, the shooting of the rapids. We um, request people not to stand up taking photographs while we're shooting into it because you have to get the boat moving uh, a lot more quickly than the current to have any control and um, it's all over before they know anything about it, but the trip is very exciting. So not much has changed in a hundred years, and the boatmen follow the same route that their great-grandfathers did. So we move across the, the lower lake, and uh, standing on its own in the middle of the lake is the historic 21-acre island known as Inishbalan. And this is one of the, the islands, or the only island in the Killarney Lakes with any buildings on and uh, today the ruins of an old church and monastery which was built by the Augustinian monks way back in the 6th century uh, still stands there today. Um, the island and um, the monastery was built by the Augustinian monks founded by St. Finian. Those monks came here from the island of Madeira in Spain. We are told, this is recorded, that they looked for a sanctuary in Europe even way back in those days, people were still slaughtering each other. And they found a beautiful island in the valley of Killarney. And of course, Killarney is only about 300 years old, so it, it wasn't there in those days. They picked the island because they were uh, seafaring people. And they got onto the island, we are told, by boats. And they began to build a monastery. It's famous because the annals of Innisfallen were compiled there. And this is a history of the ancient world from the time St. Patrick came to um, Ireland right through to about 1350. And um, the original writings are in the, the Bodleian Library in Oxford today, in the 
I believe there's a great uh, drive at government level to have them restored to Killarney at the moment. And even though the monks had a sanctuary on the Nisfadon for years and were left there in peace, uh, in later years when our chieftains became better known in Killarney, the O'Donohues and the McCarthy Moor, the O'Sullivans, they plundered the Nisfadon in time for the wealth the monks had stored there. It was finally taken in 1652 by General Ludlow, who was one of the foremost commanding chiefs in the south of Ireland. Um, on a boat trip many years ago, Thomas Moore, arriving at Innisfallen, saw the splendour and beauty, the peace, the tranquillity of the island, and getting back into his boat and leaving, he put a few words of poetry together. Sweet Innisfallen, fare thee well. May calm and sunshine long be thine. How fair thou art, let others tell. But oh, to feel how fair be mine. Sweet Innisfallen, fare thee well. And oft may light around thee smile, As soft as on that evening fell When first I saw thy fairy isle. Thou wert too lovely then for one Who had to turn to paths of care, Who had through vulgar crowds to run And leave thee bright silent there no more along thy shores to come but on the world's dim ocean tossed dream of thee sometimes as a home of sunshine we have seen and lost um, they say that um, on a boat trip one day when Tennyson arrived in Killarney um, he looked at the majestic walls of Ross Castle and immediately the words flowed out uh, splendour falls on castle walls um, it even became more famous after that than it had been before he arrived. Tennyson's bugles blowing across the lakes and fells. The town of Killarney has never been universally admired. In 1834, Henry Inglis gave his opinion. Killarney suggests to an Englishman merely a spot where lakes are situated. It is nothing but a name. But to one residing in the neighbourhood, it suggests a biggish, populous, noisy and not very pretty town. The situation of the town is not at all picturesque. For although with a fine country around, it lies at least a mile and a half from the nearest point of the lakes. There are two good streets in the town, but many bad alleys and close, filthy lanes and yards. I think the town is pretty awful. 
uh, it's uh, um, I say that because I don't think it need be it's pretty dirty and it's full of traffic and there doesn't seem to be any control or uh, uh, organization at all I think what they should do in Killarney is not allow any trucks or cars or uh, buses or anything in the town after 10 o'clock in the morning and just uh, make it into a real shopping place because that's what it is, what they want there. And, uh, uh, you know, this has been done in Europe. No cars are allowed in the center of Munich. And uh, Ravenna has transformed since they did it. Copenhagen, uh, the same thing. But the shopkeepers here will not see that. They'll think they're going to lose their shirts if they, unless all these cars can pile up outside their doors and so forth and so on. Of course, there are a couple of parking lots there, but they're full all the time. Killarney has grown out of all conceivable uh, directions, particularly towards the east of the town, very, very much bigger. The old part of the town, as you probably know, is more on this side, on the western side of the town, running up from east of the cathedral and uh, but um, that was I suppose the most remarkable thing and of course there have been a lot of changes uh, a lot of the old houses the old bow windows are rather sadly gone and that sort of thing but that I suppose is inevitable was it ever a pretty town it's rather uh, written down by visitors yes I think unfairly and to a certain extent because people are rather apt to flash down the main streets of the town and they don't go behind the scenes and see the lanes which are very attractive extremely attractive and a lot of them are being cleaned up and tidied up at this time and people are getting back to that they were allowed to get rather run down but um, I don't know uh, they say familiarity breeds contempt but I think it breeds affection and I think compared to many other small towns and certainly as a tourist town I don't think it's so unattractive I get rather cross when it's uh, I agree with the beauty of Killarney the natural beauty of course is outside the town naturally around the lakes the mountains and the general layout but I don't agree with some of uh, that that uglier town you could do with a few less uh, neon signs and a few less of that sort of thing. But there again, that's progress. And uh, as long as it isn't absolutely vile and horrible buildings, I mean, God forbid we'd ever see real skyscrapers arising in the middle of a tiny town or something awful like that, you know. But a lot of the old uh, has been preserved. Of course, I think because there's infinitely more um, opportunities to for people to work, you know, people, labor was very cheap, people were desperate to get jobs, people were trying to find ways of employment for people, things were much tidier, there was less litter about, there were people to go around and pick up litter, sweep up leaves, tidy up little corners and things, and of course, naturally, uh, unfortunately, in the modern world, uh, everyone's not quite so conscious of avoiding any type of vandalism or tearing up a shrub or what have you, and still that's, that again is perhaps part of the way of life today. I, I, I don't, uh, I'm not down on, on, you know, I don't say, oh, for God's sake, the past. I prefer to live in the present and look to the future. I have one observation to make which is relative to the want of accommodations and extraordinary expense of strangers residing in Killarney. I speak not at all feelingly, thanks to Mr. Herbert's hospitality, but from the accounts given me, the inns are miserable and the lodgings little better. 
I am surprised somebody with a good capital does not procure a large, well-built inn to be erected on the immediate shore of the lake in an agreeable situation at a distance from the town. There are very few places where such a one would answer better. There ought to be numerous and good apartments. A large rendezvous room for billiards, cards, dancing and music to which the company might resort when they chose it. An ordinary for those that liked dining in public. Boats of all sorts, nets for fishing, and as great a variety of amusement as could be collected, especially within doors. For the climate being very rainy, travellers wait with great impatience in a dirty common inn, which they would not do if they were in the midst of such accommodations as they meet with at an English spa. But above all, the prices of everything, from a room and a dinner, to a barge and a band of music, to be reasonable, and hung up in every part of the house. The resort of strangers to Kalani would then be much increased, and their stay would be greatly prolonged. They would not view it post-haste and fly away. Arthur Young, reporting on, among other things, overcharging in Kalani 210 years ago. Well, on your point about uh, Kalani being a rip-off, um, this is something that uh, Kalani has had to live with um, for a long, long time. Uh, personally, I don't feel there's any justification for it because as recently as a couple of years ago, we did, we did a survey comparing Kalani with other similar type resorts around Ireland, uh, basing it on the price of accommodation and the price of an evening meal. And we found that uh, in three of the five categories that we chose, Kalani was cheapest, and in the other two, it was second cheapest. one time we owned the three lakes well I had unfortunately to sell two of them because of death duties but I have retained the upper lake which to me is the most beautiful and I would be very very sorry ever to part with that so we have that lake and the islands on it but we sell the two lower lakes uh, together with a certain amount of property nearer the town the east end of the town uh, some of it to originate a syndicate which was taken over by Mr. John McShane and that's gone now to the government of the Board of Works, and I sold another bit myself directly to the, to the government, and have retained this bit here, where we have this house and the Castros Hotel, which we built, which is just down the road, and um, the land here, and of course I've retained the deer forest, the other side of the lake, which is about 6,500 acres. Are you regretful? Is there a tinge of remorse in your voice? <laughs> no, uh, I don't like looking back. I think you could almost say today that one's very lucky to have anything at all. Uh, it is possible to say, well, my predecessors could have done things differently and things would have been different. But then uh, 
they haven't had crystal glass to gaze into any more than I have. And uh, I think one's very lucky to have retained what one has retained. And I'd rather have a smaller unit that I can run properly and keep up properly than too much running down and broken down. I, I hate that sort of idea. Mrs. Beatrice Grosvenor, a member of the Castle Ross family and a descendant of the Earls of Kenmare. Her forebears acted as hosts to Queen Victoria. At Killarney, the Queen was received by Lord Castle Ross, Mr. Herbert of Macross Abbey, the General commanding the district, and the Mayor, who presented a loyal address. Guarded by a strong escort of troops, Her Majesty drove amidst cheering crowds to Lord Castle Ross's house, which was so charmingly picturesque that she sketched it on her arrival. At dinner in the evening, she met the Roman Catholic Bishop, Dr. Moriarty, whom she describes as a tall, stout, and very intelligent, clever man, the Knight of Kerry, and a brother of O'Connell's, whose views Her Majesty found more to her liking than those of the Liberator. On the 27th, the Queen spent most of her time on the lakes in this lovely and romantic spot, the close, warm, humid atmosphere being the only drawback to her delightful tour. In the evening, Muckross was visited, and next day, the 28th of August, after driving round Muckross Lake, the Queen went on that splendid sheet of water and admired especially the excellent rowing of the boatmen. Looking through her family guest book, Beatrice Grosvenor came on a page that recalled that visit. The date, 1861, the signature in the guest book, Victoria Regina. Uh, she seemed to bring her entire family with her. Um, there was uh, a considerable amount of fuss, I believe, at the time. She was a highly demanding lady, as we all know, and she'd sent uh, detailed instructions as to what she wanted, what she expected, how, what colour her bedroom would be painted, where it would face north, south, east or west, and so on. And she wanted regiments of soldiers put up and God knows what else. And um, I understand that uh, when she paid these visits in England to people, the host was paid out of the exchequer to cover all these expenses. But when she visited the Irish, she didn't consider that was necessary, which, had I been about at the time, there would have been certain amounts said about. I don't approve of that attitude at all. In fact, um, a regiment was being billeted in the town, and this ties in very much with tourism, and it was brought to the notice of my great-grandfather that uh, uh, if this happened, the tourists, as they were, uh, what they called them in those days, visitors or whatever, we call them tourists, uh, who wished to visit Killarney would find no accommodation. So he immediately made arrangements for the soldiers to be uh, put up in tents in the fields, and the people had their houses, the rooms in their houses free to take in the visitors. But So that's so much for her. But you see, I'm not very keen on that lady. I don't think she really did what she should have done to help Ireland. And I think a lot of our troubles, we know we have long memories, and I've already told you my family fought against Cromwell. Uh, it's a long and sad story, but I think she was one of the people. She chose the more understanding and the affection of the Irish, which she should have done, instead of everything decorated in tartan, uh, it might have been different. At twelve o'clock on Tuesday, the royal party embarked at Ross Castle amidst the cheers of thousands.
and in the presence of an immense flotilla of boats which followed the Queen's barge during the day. In the state barge were the Queen, the Prince Consort, the Prince of Wales, Prince Alfred, Princess Alice, Princess Helena, Lady Churchill, Lord Granville, and Lord and Lady Castle Ross. Spillan, the celebrated guide, steered. On the return, the boats passed through the Muckross Lake and under the old weird bridge through the lower lake to Ross Island, where they landed amid renewed acclamation. The royal party returned to Killarney House, entered the carriages in waiting, and, escorted by the first royals, started at 6.30 to Muckross Abbey, the seat of Mr. Herbert. Here there was an assemblage, and the Queen was loudly cheered. The royal party drove on Wednesday morning, attended by Colonel Herbert, around Dinnis Island and other portions of Muckross Domain. They visited Cirque Lake to witness the stag hunt intended by Colonel Herbert to take place. There was a great assemblage of boats, crowded by respectable people, who loudly cheered Her Majesty. She remained on the lake till six, and the state barge went repeatedly through the flotilla of boats. The Prince of Wales and Prince Alfred were rowed about in a race gig. A stag was started, but still the efforts of men and hounds, Morris O'Connell's pack, failed to drive the stag into the lake. After six, the Queen returned to Muckross House. The big houses are now in decline, but Billy Vincent's family owned Muckross House, and he remembers something of more spacious days. In the house, I think there were um, about uh, a butler and a couple of footmen, and old Mick Doody, who used to uh, clean the silver and the shoes and things. So there were four in the pantry, I suppose. And about, uh, there's a housekeeper and about three maids upstairs. That's about another four. And then there was uh, about the same in the kitchen, I suppose. About 12 altogether. And the outdoor stuff? Well, the outdoor stuff, of course, was much larger. There were, uh, I don't know how many gardeners there were there, but there must have been uh, about 12 or 14, I would think. And then they had uh, the staff at the farm, the staff in the uh, in the woods, and the staff uh, uh, outside on the farm, and so forth and so on. There must have been about uh, a total of about 80 people employed, I would think, outside on the estate. This yeah. just to support one family in one house. That's right. Yeah. Did but you, you see, it was not. Uh, that's what you say now. You see, but it was a different sort of. Uh, Living because uh, the uh, the uh, children of the people on the place used to come in and become the maid, and then they used to go abroad and become somebody else's maid, and it was a regular sort of uh, system. <laughs> a house of that sort attracted many notable guests. Mr. Vincent particularly remembered W. B. Yeats in Killarney. He was a, a, a charming fellow, as I remember him. But uh, I thought he was a little bit odd, you see, being a boy. And I would uh, sort of look at the guests when they went out of the house and follow them round the garden in the bushes. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> Mr. Yates was drumming up some verse or other, and I thought he was talking to the trees. But um, he wasn't, of course, but I didn't understand what he was really trying to do. <laughs> he, was, uh, he was a very... Uh, to me, a very professorial-looking fellow with his long white hair, you know, and his glasses, and he had one of these uh, ribbons around the glasses onto his ear and so forth and so on. And this is a poem uh, 
uh, written by Yeats in the guest book in his own handwriting. I don't think this poem has ever been published. A poem of the contention of the bards of the North and South, translated from the Old Irish. Sicinit an fila glas locana, entitled is the chief of Montany Muckras to a harvest of high-horned venison, and to two gallant gold-geared galleys and gallow glasses rowing upon Loch Lane. Entitled is the chief of musical Muckras to a poet living and to two poets dead, Upon the ivory harp of their bones the wind cries and through the hair of the living. The mild mansion of the chief of Muckross is suitably thatched with grey gannets' wings. The boundary walls of Muckross strike to heaven, they are the towering Tomies and Torf Mountains. Only greater are the northern hills of Era, Cleve League and Erigal, the mighty morn. The olden giants moved them northward that the southern might mountains might be seen. Stupendous as a sea waste, the northern lakes Loch Ney would swallow Loch Lane for supper. The holy island of Loch Derg is filled with prayer when Innisfallen is given to sport. The boats of chanting pilgrims cross Loch Derg, the ever-holy lake of the glorious Gael. But Saxon mountebanks feed and fool where the school of Innisfallen was studious. Grey and golden, the house of the chief of Muckross is entitled to feast faithfully jeweled women and the golden-lipped poets and to guard the holy views of the friars. A place so lovely that it seems, neither from waking life nor dreams, a mystery from those mysteries that startle shut and waking eye. Signed by W.B. Yeats, September the 1st, 1926. The beauty of Killarney stirs the poet, not alone in people like Yeats, but in every man. Jimmy Cullinan, a head waiter in the town for many years, recited a few verses he had composed. This is a little poem about the heights of Ahado, referring to a, a very popular scene in Killarney. When you're gazing on Killarney from the heights of Ahado, you're looking down on paradise so peaceful there below. It's a little bit of heaven, you can see the reason why, and you'll never find its equal no matter where you try. Looking on the placid waters from this lofty view and high, the, the purple heather mountains are so pleasing to the eye. The magic of the islands add more beauty to the scene in this lovely lakeland setting, so lush, so soft and green. Dr. Billy O'Sullivan, the well-known Killarney doctor, remembered a local man who became famous in his time, the Viscount Castle Ross. He was much in demand in London society and led a hectic life there. I think he did, and he led a very hectic life in Killarney. He was uh, he was uh, really uh, very fond of food, and uh, he lived very well. He was a very hospitable man, a tremendously hospitable man indeed, and enjoyed life to the full. He was keen on shooting. He was keen on deer stalking, and uh, I often went deer stalking with him but it was uh, an experience that say, the few people have had because when he went deer stalking he brought a retinue of servants followers gamekeepers fellows carrying the lunch others carrying table and tablecloth and um, it was quite a, an occasion and we'd walk up into the middle of the deer forest and before any shooting was done, we'd sit down and have lunch. Uh, 
one of the things that always amused me that he carried that um, one of his staff carried um, a portable commode toilet paper protection so that if his lordship was short taken <laughs> everything would be done in comfort it sounds like the only way to live yes it was the only way to live but it began to get into the deer forest you have to climb over two very sharp fences and they're sort of ladders go up the side of each fence and his lordship at this time was not a very active man he would have two fellas pulling him in front by the hands and about three pushing him in the backside behind he was pretty heavy then to get him over yeah to get him over the fence we'd eventually get him over all right and he'd sit then we'd have lunch he'd sit and he'd spy around the deer forest and see where there was a deer there used to be a lot of deer at that time see whether there was a deer fit to be shot and he'd send me off to shoot the deer and he'd wait down in the valley where the lunch was and he wouldn't uh, stalk himself but very often a deer would pass close by and he might he might shoot him because he he was a very good shot and he was quite a good he was a very good shot at pheasants and other game as well but he enjoyed uh, he enjoyed that sort of thing and indeed about two days before he got the heart attack that killed him we were to go deer stalking but and the day turned out terribly wet and you know that it was cascading rain so we put that off we postponed that day and we never went after that because he died two days afterwards so it could well have happened that he would have died in the deer forest if we went up there Dr O'Sullivan mentioned how hospitable Valentine Castle Ross was but there were limits. I was over there at dinner one night, and the Lord Chief Justice at the time, um, Conor Maguire, Mr. Justice Conor Maguire was there, and some other visitors. And Iron Bevan was there another time, the famous Iron Bevan, and Shinwell, Lord Shinwell, he's now a, la- a Labour peer, Manny Shinwell, yeah. I met those two there another time. But anyhow, we were at this dinner, and I remember Conor Maguire being there, but I, I can't remember who the others were. And food was very scarce at that time. At least delicacies were very scarce. But Castle Ross, uh, after dinner, we had the usual wine and everything. After dinner, the port was produced. Uh, one particular decanter of port was passed around among the guests Castle Ross kept his own particular decanter so I always thought I still do that there was a particularly good year in that decanter and this night he had a beautiful dish of peaches the things we hadn't seen for years he had the dish of peaches put down by his own plate and he took one or two even None of them were passed around. So that's, uh, you know, he was terribly hospitable, but he wasn't as hospitable as to pass the peaches around in wartime. The anecdotes, the history, the lore of Killarney bring a feeling of spaciousness and gracious living. Time seems to stand still there, and what was true of the place five or fifteen generations ago still holds. 
There is such an infinite variety from the white and golden lilies which close to the land look like miniature canoes from which fairy watermen have just sprung lightly ashore to the towering heights and eyries. Such diversity of tint and outline on the mountains, tree-clothed from crown to base, in those islets so freshly fair and in those dancing waters which raise their smiling waves to kiss the flowers and ferns, such contrasts, and yet such a perfect whole of wood and water harmoniously confused, such transformations wrought by cloud and breeze, yet always such complete repose that the eye can never weary.